Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. So my message, and I mention this to you probably every time I do it, but... Um, I have the fun already. I've already gone through the scriptures, so I've had I've done it myself a couple different times, and each time it's a little bit different. I always have a good time. Hopefully, you guys will get something out of this as well. So, the Torah portion, Vayechi, and he lived. And the message that I kind of have this time is, why family? You'll notice that in the scripture we've been talking about, the whole last part of, of Genesis, but most of Genesis is narrative, right? I mean, it starts with Adam and Eve. It, it starts with the God creating the heaven and earth, but then it, then it goes to, you know, quickly to Adam and Eve, and it moves through, and we see Abraham, and since something like, you know, chapter 18 or something, we've, we've, been, we've been dealing with Jacob, or Abraham and his family, and, and we've gone down through Isaac, and now we're Jacob, and we've spent a lot of time with Jacob's son, uh, Yosef. I started thinking about that some. I was, I was saying, why, why do we spend so much, why does God spend so much of the real estate of, of, uh, of the Bible and, and Genesis in particular about, talking about Jacob and his, you know, we know about his 12 sons and at least one daughter. And I started thinking about families in general. There's a lot of time talking about family and God uses families and talks about families. I come from a, a good-sized family. We had uh, uh, seven kids. I was the fifth of seven. My wife, a little bit smaller family, she's the oldest of her, uh, the five uh, brothers and sisters there. We've had six kids ourselves. My oldest daughter lives just over in the uh, west side of Oklahoma City. She also has six children herself now already. So we think about family a lot. And I enjoy family, you know. But why does the Bible talk about family? Is it just because that's just the way it was? That's all there was? Is that all they had to do to talk, talk about? You know, there's a lot of now challenges to even traditional family. And while it's true that each family is different, the traditional family has existed since the beginning of Earth's history, if you think about that. And it's still the fundamental building block of any society. So who created the family? Well, God created families, right? In the garden, Gan Eden, God brought together Adam and Eve, Adam and Hava, right? If we go look at Genesis chapter 2, pretty early in the book, verses 20 through 24. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and all to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we have Adam and Eve together right from the beginning. Now, in case you wonder if this is just one example of many of the arrangements that God could have made, Yeshua clarified this issue in Matthew in 19, 3 through 6. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he said, answered and said unto them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no man separate. So I feel compelled because I've heard enough from different people recently that this is a marriage because Yeshua was asked if a man could divorce his wife. If you're getting divorced, you are already married. Believers have always married and they don't just do their own thing. They always follow the rules of society. So marriage has been around since the beginning of time and God's the one who, who, who set it all going. The other thing and I don't know if you all know Zig Ziglar, but um, I remember listening to him years and years ago. And I remember he would say, now I'm going to say something profound. He said, I have to tell you that because I notice many people miss my profound thoughts unless I tell you. Well, I have one of those now. Human behavior has not changed. God may have created families thousands of years ago. Times have changed. They were simple farmers. We have computers, rockets, artificial intelligence. But human behavior has not changed. This is why the Bible is still relevant to us today. The way people act and respond in the Bible narrative is just the same as we act and respond today. Anybody who's read the Bible, I think you can see the truth of that uh, as you go through it. We understand the injustice and hopelessness and Israel endured in Egypt. Their celebration on the seashore when the Egyptians were destroyed we can see the frustrations with common problems like infertility and struggles with children. We see individuals and nations react to trials and triumphs. All of those are the same as we act today. Technology may change, but people don't change. Human behavior doesn't change. That's why some of the parables still make sense to us and explain concepts better than just words. Think of the Good Samaritan. Yeshua was asked what he meant by neighbor. And so he goes and he gives the parable of the good neighbor. And it, that gave such a better description. It, was, it, it, it did not leave any room for doubt. It, it, it clarified the situation better than any list he could have provided by just simply relating a narrative, a story about what the neighbor was. Because, again, we're the same as we always are. It's also the same why, it's also the reason why Psalms and Proverbs still seek profoundly, speak so profoundly to us today as well. So, what are some of the possible reasons why God created the family? And I have to say possible reasons because God doesn't tell us that. God tells us a lot of stuff. But from reading the Bible, I have some ideas. Hopefully, they'll make sense to you guys as well. One of the most likely reasons for family to me is the universality of family. We're all born into some type of family. We have most of us married and reared our own families or will do so. We know something about other families as well through our friends through history, through books and stories, we have opinions on family. We probably have an idea in our head of the ideal family. 
Now, that may change over time, but we all have some idea. And we know family members better than we know anyone else. And I think that that's kind of pretty significant idea. See, we know their weaknesses. We know, we remember very vividly when they failed. They remind us when we failed. We still usually love each other in spite of all that. Families are the closest we get to knowing or understanding God's love for us. And I think that it's precisely because we do know each other so well that that's true. We can't really know God's love because he's not us, right? We, we are his creation. But I do think that that approaches the, the idea, helps us understand God's love for us. And again, we know what it means to have parents. Now, we have happiness, joys, trials, and we know what it means to be a good father. And like I said, even though that may change for us over time, and because we have some understanding of what it means to be a good father have a, or have a good father, God uses that to help us better understand him. You'll notice in Scripture that God compares himself to a father, to us. Not just we don't, we also can make those comparisons, but he does. We can see this in the language of Malachi chapter 2, as he appeals to Israel to keep their covenant. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? But that's not the first time that God was likened to a father. God himself used this language much earlier, centuries earlier, in fact, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel and have turned away backward. Now, that's not exactly warm and fuzzy. <laughs> you know, the Lord does compare himself to a father, and he compares us to children, children who have gone astray. This language does not stop when we get to the new covenant. It becomes even more personal, if that's possible. One of the many references can be found in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And we use those verses a lot, don't we? Because we like to think of him as our father. And this, is, this language is also used again by the Messiah himself when he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, right? So what is the point? Why does he say our Father? Why would he say that? Well, because he loves us like a father would. He chastises us like a father would. He cares for us. He takes care of our needs. He knows us intimately, but still forgives us. Because only he, our creator and God, could possibly understand us, tolerate our weaknesses, and still love us in spite of them and redeem us. That is why he is our father, the greatest father we could ever have. 
So that's one of the reasons I think that God uses families, so he helps, him, helps us understand God and his love for us better, helps us understand love itself better. So let's get back a little bit to the, um, the story. Joseph, we've been talking about Joseph for, for a little bit of a while in, in Genesis. Where does the story about Joseph and his, what does the story about Joseph and his brothers tell us? We begin by talking about families. Again, I've already kind of gone through um, Adam and Eve and all the way through Abraham, Yitzhak, Rivka. But Joseph gets the majority of the focus. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons, but the oldest of the favored wife. Yaakov, or Jacob, worked for his uncle Lavan for 20 years. During that time, he had 11 of his 12 sons. So even though he was the 11th, all of his older brothers were less than 20 years older than him. Kind of an interesting idea to think about. The oldest brothers were Leah's sons. The oldest, Reuben, or Reuben, slept with Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. Tells us that in Genesis 35. The next two, Simeon and Levi, killed all the men in Shechem <laughs> after their sister Dinah was raped. At 17, after these events, at 17, Joseph was feeding the flocks with his brothers from Bilhah and Zilpah. And he brought a bad report of them to his father. That tells us this in Genesis chapter 37. His brothers did not like him. Again, we know that. But let's read about it in Genesis chapter 37, 3 through 4. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Joseph then had a couple of dreams that suggested his brothers were to bow to him. Tells us that again in chapter 37 of Genesis. But, and how did his brothers react to the dream? In Genesis 37, 5. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. The verses that follow Joseph telling his family about his dream tell us his brothers went to feed their flock in Shechem. And Yaakov sends Yosef to check on them. So it's all right there in that same time frame. And at this point... Joseph's brothers decide to kill him. In Genesis 37, 19 through 20, they said, then, let us, then they said one to another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, <laughs> my brothers and I have argued. My brothers and I, I, I have a brother who's just 13 months older than me, and another one's just two years younger. We were kind of thick as thieves all the way through high school. Um, actually, he wanted to beat me up all the way through high school, but I was bigger than him, so that didn't... I, I honestly considered, I, I know this will sound, this is kind of an aside, and it sounds kind of strange, but I actually thought about hitting him, and, and I thought, I don't really want to do that. I'm, I don't really want to hurt my brother. So I just resisted. Even his friends would say, just, just knock him out, just be done with it. But, but, but I never did. And we were closer in many ways than, than... But we also, again, we fought from time to time. And, and I've, I've struggled with most of my brothers and sisters in one way or another, as everybody does. But I never considered seriously hurting any of them. Uh, murder was never even a topic of conversation. Uh, I knew a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people, some who had violent families. Again, murder was never a consideration in any of these families. Lots of people get angry. But how many consider murder? The Bible says they hated Yosef, and hate is a strong word. So Yosef is 17 at the time that he 
was feeding the fox. And, and so he's, he's maybe a little bit older than that. His brothers are all in their 20s and 30s because they're only 20 years older than him. But his oldest brother did not respect his father because he already slept with his concubine. The next two brothers killed all the men in a city. It's kind of hard to get past that thought. I mean, they didn't think about it. They did it. They went and they lied to them. They tricked them and killed the entire city. When their father, Yaakov, scolded them, they defied him. They asked if they should just let their sister be treated like a harlot, implying that's exactly what Yaakov done. So they didn't respect Yaakov either. Matter of fact, I usually when I tell that story, I, I say then they got on their Harleys and rode away because they, uh, they were rough guys. So it's not an idle threat when they decide to kill Yosef. We read that and we might just say, oh, people talk about, people fight. But these people have actually done deeds. They've actually done stuff. Now, we know that they didn't kill them, but they stole them instead. So what do we know of Yosef? Well, he was bought by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Potiphar prospers and Yosef rises to become overseer of everything under, in Potiphar's house. He's unjustly accused, thrown into prison, even though he has done no wrong. The keeper of the prison puts all the prisoners into Yosef's hand, and he prospered there. Yosef interprets dreams of the butler and the baker. The butler promised he would show kindness to Yosef once he was free, but he forgot him for two full years. Then Pharaoh had a dream, and the butler told him about Yosef. Yosef interprets a dream, and Pharaoh promises, or promotes Yosef. He gave him a wife, and he gets him to manage all of the food stores in Egypt. All of that took place within 12 to 13 years after being sold into Egypt. It's a long time. It's a long time to endure the things he endured, but it's also a meteoric you know, rise to, to power. So when his brothers first appear before Yosef, it was nine years after that, so 20, 20 some odd years after they had last seen him. When his brothers first appear before him, he sets a trap for them and the brothers talk freely. So let's look in Genesis 42, 21. Then they said one to another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So even though it's been a while, they remember it pretty vividly too. And their memory is not necessarily rosy. They haven't looked back with rose-colored glasses. They, they recognize what they had done. They knew that they were guilty. Now, when he reveals himself to them a few years later, a couple of years later, he tries to calm their fears. Let's go to Genesis 45, 4 through 5. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So he does what he can to calm their fears. He brought his entire family into Egypt to survive the famine. They are given land and provision. He takes care of them. So it's 17 years later after that event that Yaakov passes away and is and is buried in Abraham's tomb in Machpelah. And when he and his brothers return to Egypt, his brothers are still worried that Yosef will take revenge upon them 17 years later. Or if you want to go all the way back, it's closer to 40 years since they sold him in Egypt. And it, that says, by the way, much more about them than it does say about Yosef, doesn't it? <laughs> but let's look in Genesis. We're finally up to our portion in Genesis 50. 15 through 18, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us 
and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please, therefore, or now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And there's been a lot of discussion about why he wept. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. So I think he wept because he still doesn't have that close relationship. They obviously are still fearful of him. He is a man of power. We know how badly he was treated by his brothers, and I think that's why we're given such detail about the family. We know that life was often cruel to Joseph, through no fault of his own. We know he has been generous with his brothers in spite of their treatment. So how does he react to this lie or apparent lie? Because we were never told that his father said that after his father's death. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, right after that, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I find that extremely interesting because one of the things that people often get on to Joseph for is, is they say, well, he was kind of a, he was kind of a, a mama's boy. He's kind of, he's kind of, a, he told on his brothers he was a snitch. Snitches get stitches, right? But, um, but he's very plain talking. He was plain talking when he was in captivity. He was plain talking with his brothers before he was taken into captivity. He's plain talking now. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Boom. Straightforward. Very straightforward. And he forgave his brothers. He forgave his brothers. Every indication in Scripture says his forgiveness was complete and genuine. Why am I spending time with that? Because we've never had forgiveness in the Bible before. Actually, we never may have had forgiveness in the history of mankind before this event. This is the first recorded account of forgiveness I can think of. There's been appeasement before. There's been, let's just go past this and we'll move on and not talk about it anymore. But forgiveness, this is forgiveness. This is actual forgiveness. I don't believe that we could truly comprehend the magnitude of that forgiveness without understanding the events in Joseph's life and his relationship with his brothers. Through Joseph, we start to get a glimpse of the forgiveness that's offered to us through Messiah because he is a type of Messiah. Yosef, like Messiah, was loved by his father. He was hated by his brothers, really without any cause. He was condemned by his brothers. He was sold for pieces of silver by his brothers. He was delivered to Gentiles by his brothers, was falsely accused. He was also known to have the Spirit of God, like, like Messiah. He showed compassion, like Messiah. And he was honored among the Gentiles while still at odds with his brother. And again, he loved and forgave his brothers Without being asked, by the way, I might add, he did not, in the same as Yeshua, was not asked by his brothers, and nor, nor does, nor is Joseph, but they forgave. So we've seen, we've been given many examples of the hardships that they had to endure. Few people have been treated as badly by family and strangers. Few have been, fewer still have risen to a position where they controlled the destiny of the people who abused them, right? They could have taken revenge for the treatment they received, 
both Joseph and Yeshua, but they didn't. They could have simply turned their backs on their brothers, right? They, they didn't even have to be nasty to them. They could have just said, eh, you guys chose outside, you guys stay outside. But they didn't do that. They forgave their brothers freely without condition. They understand that what they endured was God's plan to save many people alive. And they saved not just their brothers, but the Gentiles as well. It's kind of neat. So Yosef's salvation was really salvation from food, <laughs> right? I mean, they, they were without a food. It was a temporary thing. It was just that they didn't have food to eat. Pretty bad if you don't have food to eat, but it was a temporal thing. It was temporary. Messiah's salvation is spiritual and eternal. So in that case, I mean, any example, they're, they're not the same as, right? But, they're, but they, they do have things where they're the same. So let's read a little bit about Messiah. In John 3, 16 and 17, everybody knows these verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I've always thought it was interesting when I, when I compare uh, when they, God takes Israel out of Egypt. I mean, right now they're just coming into Egypt, but we, we all know the stories. They do nothing to save themselves. Well, his brothers didn't do anything to save themselves here. I think the, the picture that we're painted in Scripture is that we don't do anything to save ourselves. <laughs> I mean, if you look at all the examples, we, we, it's not us. It's not our, because of our works that, that we're saved. Um, the story of Yosef also has hints of the two appearances of the Messiah. I thought this was kind of interesting. His earthly life 2,000 years ago and his second coming at the end of the day, age. Why do I say that? Well, Yosef, like Messiah, was not recognized by his brothers when they first came to him, even though he recognized them. In John 7, 2 through 5, it says, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go up into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he, he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And that was actually his family brothers. Those were his immediate family. <laughs> we don't think about that a lot. We know that the, he was not widely accepted. But he did bless his brothers without their knowledge. Same as Yosef. There was a period of years between the first meeting and the second meeting in the case of Yosef. He sends them home. They eventually come back. And he revealed himself to his brothers the second time they were together. And they all wept. In Zechariah verses, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So we're told that there will also be tears when they recognize him as Messiah. He also prepared a place for his brothers and he received them into it. We've been told in Scripture that Yeshua will prepare a place for us and receive us into it. And in both cases, neither of them stopped identifying as a Hebrew or as we would say today, a Jew. Even though they were in a place of Gentiles, both of them being ruled by Gentiles at the time, both of them still identified as the house of Israel. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, So Messiah was offered once 
to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So Messiah is coming back. And in case we're confused, and I've heard many different ideas about the second coming or when he comes again. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's not going to be a mysterious or secret thing. We're all going to know it. So we read through, we read through many scriptures that gave us insights into the relationship between Yosef and his brothers. And there are many more scriptures that give us insight into Messiah Yeshua. We should not ignore them. As Kepha, Peter, warns us in his first epistle, in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For to you, for to this you were called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We are to follow his examples. You know, I've, I've told people before, people when they ask about the seat seat, and I always tell them, it's like a what would Jesus do bracelet, except for it's a command in scripture, right? It helps people understand that we're supposed to follow his laws and stuff like that. But I started thinking about that. If you want to know what Jesus would do, what do you do? You have to read the Bible, right? Because that's where it tells us what he did. <laughs> so when people say, what would Jesus do? Just tell them, go read your Bible. It'll tell you what Jesus did. Because that's, it, it tells us that already. So back to our original question, why family? Because God uses our life and our relationships to understand him better. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to love others in spite of their weaknesses and in spite of our weaknesses. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, and I'll end with this, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in, in his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. This is the true God and eternal life. So all of this is about why are we reading the Scriptures? Why are we doing it all? It's because we want to know God, and we want to love like he does, and we want to behave like he does. As I've said to you before, it's all about loving God and loving your, your neighbor. All we have to do is two things, just two things, and we can love God and love our neighbor. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat. And we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H. Org. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.